but Bradford Smith was the definition of a small-town sports star. Smith fakes the jumper. Scotty Pippen goes down. The Bradford Smith, a little room now. Mm-hmm. He hits again. He's got 10 points. He went to high school in Bay City, Texas, a town with a population of 18,000. And he was named the Gatorade Player of the Year by his high school. He has really got that touch going. From that humble start, the Bradford worked his butt off and applied to the University of Louisville. Through grit and perseverance, proved he had the potential to be a star. During his four years at U of L, the Bradford averaged double-figure scores each season. The Bradford became a first-round pick out of college, 19th overall, and in 1991, he was the first person out of Bay City to get drafted into the NBA. As a pro, LeBradford went to play for the Washington Bullets, and in just his second season, LeBradford found himself going head-to-head against the god of the court, Michael Jordan, a man who had already been playing pro ball for over a decade and was already considered the best player in the history of basketball. On March 19, 1993, LeBradford and the Bullets lost against Jordan and the Bulls, which was expected. After all, the 90s Bulls were well, the 90 Bulls. No other comparison can be made. But when the Bullets took a beating by the Bulls, they only lost by a few points, which wasn't a vast enough gap to make Michael Jordan happy. That insult injury, LeBradford had, against all odds, managed to score 37 points on Jordan, which is why at the end of the game, Michael Jordan made up a story about the small town LeBradford Smith. According to Jordan, LeBradford had slid up, put his arm around Jordan, and said, nice game, Mike, before laughing and sauntering off. This mockery fueled Jordan's anger and sent him into a berserker rage for the next game, wherein Jordan, quote, humiliated LeBradford. You can even hear it in the broadcast recording. Jordan backing LeBradford Smith. Michael takes it on the turnaround. Oh-ho! I'll tell you, that was a one-on-one move where he couldn't get it to another teammate, and LeBradford Smith played as good as you can play on a guy, and Michael has his average. Keeping the ball out of his hands, scoring on him, punishing him for the insult. An insult that was, as we already mentioned, totally made up by Jordan. Here's a fun fact that was left out of the documentary, The Last Dance. Something that came up during an episode of Bull Talk Podcast. LeBradford knew Michael Jordan was out for blood. He knew Jordan would fabricate grudges to motivate his performance. LeBradford even tried to head it off, and he told reporters during the post-game interview not to make a big deal about his career-best game because LeBradford didn't want Jordan to turn his 37 points into a vendetta. But it didn't matter. Jordan didn't need to hear the interview. He had already invented a fence in his imagination that would lead to the historic whooping LeBradford received in Game 2 with the Bullets. There's a lot of debate about how much competitiveness we should have in order to dominate in business and in sports. Jack Welch, CEO of General Electric, famously said, If you don't have a competitive advantage, don't compete. 
which is ironic from a company that requires some of its employees to sign non-compete agreements. So which is it? Do we perform better when we're competition-focused, even if we have to invent enemies in our head? Or is it simple, quiet discipline enough to make us world-class? That's our subject today, competitiveness. And we have three myths to bust on the matter. Myth one. Male deers have to fight each other for mating rights. So do walruses and rams. But humans? Competition is as likely to cost us resources as winning. So why? Myth two. If we make up our own enemies, can we hypothetically be like Mike? Or is there a limit to our performance if we don't naturally have MJ's killer instinct? Myth three. Is there even such thing as competitiveness? What if competitive is just another word for asshole? Our first sort of discussion has to really start with, like a lot of our episodes, um, where it happens with evolution. Why do we compete? Um, You know, we're not like deer. Like, why are we locking horns on the basketball court? Uh, Is that how we justify competitive behavior? Do you need to be competitive? Um, like CEOs, I hear a lot of CEOs and see a lot of quotes from CEOs that say that you have to be competitive, that it is imperative that you dominate everybody else who is manufacturing the same good as you, or that you need to have the dominant spirit in the boardroom to get a good deal. But then I see actual studies from colleges saying that CEOs are just very smartly risk averse. And they they jump in to compete when they know that they will win quickly to avoid losing resources. Yeah, they're not looking for challenges. They're they're looking for advantages. Right, right. So <laughs> that's that's going to be a huge part of our, our episode, too, is how much of this is being a dick like Jordan because you're competitive. How much of it is you're just using an advantage you have and some of that emotional dickishness comes with the territory. Um. There's a weird example I want to start with, and then I have a question for you. Um, did you ever hear about uh, Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut, the world uh, fast, like like food eating champions, speed eaters? I, I watch that every year. <laughs> that one in New York. Oh my god! No way. I was so impressed by. It. Yeah, I just think it's cool. <laughs> and there's a there's a bunch of other ones too at the top of the food chain. There's one little Japanese lady who's the tiniest thing I've ever seen, and she just puts them away. <laughs> I, I I used to um I had no idea what it was about, like the speed eating, and then I listened to an episode of Stuff You Should Know, and they talk about that Kobayashi and Joey Chestnut basically took it from uh, um speed eating, especially the hot dog eating championship is the big one. And they they got into it and it was Kobayashi at first who pioneered a bunch of methods to speed eat faster. Like he would split the hot dog in fat uh, in half and then dip it in water and, and all this crazy stuff. And interview after interview with both these guys, they they are asked, why are they the best? And they're like, we took it seriously. And nobody else did like they actually treated it with the competitiveness of a sport. Everybody else was doing it because they were big guys or small guys that could eat a lot. And they're just like, no, I've, I've this is fun. Well, I think the important part of that, too, is that these don't look like they're so competitive. They don't look like what you think a competitive when you think of a competitor eater the first thing you think of is job of the hut right right you think of this you know with the best these guys are whipped thin and almost look like fitness models 
you know? Right. <laughs> Especially Kobiaski, but even Joey Chestnut looks pretty, he's a little bit older, but he still looks good. And, and part of that is because they know that like they have to strengthen stomach muscles to eat, you know, 40 hot dogs or whatever it is. And they have to like, they have to have enough room for their stomach to expand. So they can't be too large to begin with. And they, they have training regiments and they eat specific foods. And yeah, it's, it's wild, but that just, nobody was taking it that seriously. And I've, I've heard the same kind of said about Jordan and I've heard the same said about other, like people who are professionally competitive. And so these, people, these people didn't just invent a sport. So they invented a sport. Like you said, they're the ones to take it seriously. They took it to right now. Their net worth is four and $3 million. So they, <laughs> so that's, that's pretty inspiring really. You know, I had no idea. I thought they, I don't know why they, in my they brain they lost the, money. They work at uh, Lowe's or Home Depot. <laughs> they do this. Right. No, it's not all you can eat is your, your prize. They're, they're millionaires and live in big houses and drive nice cars and everything. Is there anything in your life that you've taken that competitive? Like that you've, you've decided I'm going to be the most serious person about this that exists? Well, you know, you gave me that question. You talked about my, you know, growing up in youth sports. And I thought about it, but I don't think sports was that competitive. And I'll tell you why. The sports teams I was always on, I was in smaller schools and this and that. Everybody makes the team who tries out. I didn't start getting cut till I was older. And then in boxing, I wasn't competitive enough. I only took the advice that I liked. Like I was told to cut weight and get smaller. And I didn't want to do that. So I wasn't willing to do whatever it took to win. And then when I got older, I realized, because a lot of companies will say, we want competitive people, we want ex-athletes, because they're the most competitive. I got very competitive in public speaking. And when I realized that, when I got into more of an artsy side, I went and started taking acting classes, voiceover classes, acting classes. And I realized right away, Joe, that the arts, acting, was more competitive than sports. <laughs> there was more preparation. There was more people trying to get the same part as you, and people were cut. There was way more no's and rejection and competitiveness in preparation in the arts than there was on a, on a sports field. I can see that because it is, it is purely competitive. You either make the, the spot or you don't. Like if you're being selected for a play or a movie or something, it's, you, you literally have to beat everybody to it every time. And then once you're there... You want to do your best because you're facing humiliation if you don't, and the you know your family and the director and whoever else. And you and I have both competed in speech contests. What what have you been most? I know I'm gonna. This is I'm gonna say it. I'm not gonna ask you. Right. I know in your writing, <laughs> it's a rejection filled. I mean, talked about your competitiveness in writing. Well, I I um I started getting into uh, short story competitions just purely because I needed a metric for how good I was. Like I, I, I was convinced that I was not uh, a qualified writer and because I hadn't been published in like the last few lingering magazines that are, are prestige magazines. I was like, well, if I haven't been published in one of those, then I'm not very good. And so I started competing in um, a variety of, of contests, short story, um, American fiction, um, uh, science fiction, and I started winning. Like I, I started getting, you know, minor uh, wins and a, a couple of you know, fairly big ones from writers guilds. And I realized that for me, I was extraordinarily hyper competitive, even though I don't see or know anybody in the contest. Most of them are blind. Most of them are done 
without knowing names um, until it's all over. So I, I realized that, you know, I, I could push myself, you know, writing, you know, eight to 12 hours a day, e- even if half of that was unusable because I was too tired. Um, I, I found out I had a deep well of competitiveness that I didn't really have before. Did you get that taste when you won something or placed well? Now, I, I think you need for context for our, for our listeners, how many people and how many good writers compete in the contest that you compete in? Okay. Um, the first one that, that kind of gave me an idea that I should continue um, was a Willamette Writers uh, contest. And I don't know how many people had entered it. I know it was a lot. And I know that the, the number, uh, the first place winner was from Utah. And he, he had written in uh, to Oregon. And I was the second place winner. And I was, I was a local. Um, so I know that it was, it was in the thousands to possibly 10,000s of people who had entered, um, thousands and you finished second. Yeah. And, and you were pretty uh, green then you weren't as experienced as you are now. Oh God. Yeah. That was uh 2014. Um, and then I have since gotten into, uh, high judging or final judging for, um, the Tom Howard contest, um, which is an East coast contest. I have been entering, um, Riders of the Future for quite a long time. They're a purely sci-fi and fantasy contest, and they are the biggest. Uh, they they get they they won't disclose how many people send in, but there's a lot of like guesstimation that it's in the the ten thousand sometimes. Um, and what I've ex- gotten in finalist in that one. Well, I was driving around with Joe. We're going to do, to go to the studio to record one day, and I said, well, "How many how many words do you write a day?" of finished polished writing. And he said 3,000 without, you know, kind of just like, like, no big deal. And I said, how long have you been doing that? And he said, oh, for about 15 years. Very, <laughs> and I about drove off the road. I'm like, that's like, yeah, I mean, that's like a huge term paper, a huge project every single day, that kind of consistency. There's gotta be some kind of drive and competitiveness to get you out of bed and not just get sick and tired or reading and writing. I mean, like you start at, you know, you drag yourself out of bed and you start doing it uh, and it is a, a drag and it's annoying and you have to caffeinate yourself and get prepared. And then once you're doing it, if, if you are you know, experienced enough, you get into flow state quickly and you, you can just go for hours. And I suspect that a lot of competition works that way. We're going to get into like the, the mechanism, uh, the, the psychological mechanism that happens that gets you into flow state. Um, but I, I'm, I'm starting to suspect that people who are good at being competitive, but not particularly jerks about it, because like I said, I'm, I'm writing blind. Like, I don't know who my competition is, so I can't pull a Jordan. I, I could, I suppose, just like show up at local uh, writers groups and like eyeball people and, and say that manufacture that somebody had like put an arm around me and, and said, you know, good contest, Joe, or something. <laughs> but there's there's no point. Yeah, you stop bragging. It's just the facts, my friend. Um, you know, Joe's been offered book deals, and he's a, he's a very accomplished writer. That's not that's not debatable. Um, another thing about sports that you know, and, and this is on the Michael Jordan thing too. Sports are dominated by bigger, faster kids and bigger, faster men and women. Period. Which is what an advantage, right? <laughs> oh, you mean you could run faster and jump higher, and and you're stronger and you're better at sports? Oh, no duh. That's not a no duh. To, to to get to that level even to start with you have to you have to start out with being superhuman like if you're michael jordan 
I mean, like he was, am I remember correctly? He was scouted when he was basically a high schooler. Oh yeah. And they, they keep a good eye at these colleges and these colleges and pro programs know these kids to the point. I'll give you an example. The, the boxer, Oscar de la Hoya, uh, he had a parent die when he was very young, when he was like 12 or 13. Bob Arum, one of the biggest uh, promoters in boxing, paid for the funeral. So wow, he was on their radar <laughs> at some nationals probably when he was seven or eight. So, so there's, you know, they're forecasting their, their future. Okay. And do you think emotionally um, it is justified? Like if, let, let's say that you are scouted early, you are a top competitor, you know, uh, um, you are a top in your sport already before you even get into college. Is it justified when people of that age and of that natural talent, is it justified when they act like a jerk? Like, is it, it seems like a lot of like, especially high school and college level coaches give that kind of behavior a pass. Oh, absolutely. And they even, um, there's scouts that will say things like that. They'll, they'll look at how attractive the person's um, partner is and say, oh, yeah, they've got, or if it, they're not, they'll say, oh, they're, they're not competitive enough. They're not alpha enough. They're looking for this, this, to be high emotional and very aggressive. And, and being aggressive is what? Being a jerk, right? Bullying. Right. It's bullying on a field or on a court. They like that. Right. Be physical. What's that mean? Push the other people around. <laughs> It means cheat a little bit. It means get an upper hand, hold them down. I feel like in coaching that has changed. Like, like I, I completely agree with you that that is the justification for being hyper competitive and being a jerk is that it's a, it's a, it shows that you're dominant. But I, I, I feel like that might be sort of an older style of coaching. You're absolutely right. And now it's, are you coachable? Do you listen? What is your ceiling? There's a lot of seven footers. But they look, start looking at the granular stuff, and they start looking. My friend played minor league baseball, and this is what he told me. He said, there's the Alex Rodriguez's, there's the, the Ken Griffey Jr.'s, these, this one percenters who are, you can't miss. They're, they're going to be special. He said, the 98% of the rest of us, he said, they ask us a lot of questions. They want to see how developmental we are, how mature we are emotionally, so they can see what our ceiling is. They, have, they don't realize what it is, so they pick out the people who are the most coachable, who are the easiest to get along with, who get along with teammates who are good people. And that's 98%. So they'll look the other way on the 1%, the prima donnas, the rock stars. But the other people, they have to get along with their teammates, they have to listen to their coaches, or they will never make it to the next level. Right. See, that, that makes a lot of sense to me that now it is sort of a prima donna syndrome. Um, did you, <laughs> I sent you the, I sent you the dumb SNL clip. Uh, did you see the, the original clip of uh, Michael Jordan playing quarters with his man or his um, bodyguard? I did. And, and it's, it's very upsetting. So Michael Jordan's got a guy who's middle-aged, about half his size. And Michael Jordan's, this guy's saying, why do you want to gamble with me? You know, he's his employee. You know, anytime you go out with your boss and play a game, you're going to take a dive, right? I mean, you don't, you right. don't want to beat your boss. And he says in a vile, nasty way, I, you know, he's like, he's a multi, multi-millionaire. He says, I know I have my money. He goes, hey, what do you care about winning some quarters? You're all, already a multi-millionaire. He says, I want the money in your pocket. <laughs> Just a total jerk. I do want to talk to you a little bit of ego out of control from Michael Jordan real quick. 
Okay. Um, there, there's stories of him um, late at night keeping his friends up in his hotel room in Vegas. He's a big gambler. I think he probably has a gambling problem, which is fine if you're a billionaire. Um, but he'll keep up his crew, his posse, his entourage, and force them to play cards when they're exhausted and want to go to bed. They're tired of doing his laundry. They're tired of bodyguarding him. He will keep them up until he wins. And so that's a competitiveness or that's a bully advantage. You know, you, you sometimes you, you game with your friends and you, you stay out a little late. But when you're the, the bread earner of the group and you force your friends. <laughs> right. Now, Michael Jordan, he retired from basketball and he, he loves baseball. He's a big baseball fan. Basketball is his first sport. So he wanted to become a major league baseball player and convinced that he was able to, that he had the skills. Now, he doesn't quite have the body for it. He has more of a basketball body. But he is a living God in the city of Chicago then and even today and probably will be forever. So the Chicago White Sox let him play for their team in double A ball, which is it goes single A, double A, triple A, and then you're in the majors the big time. So double A is halfway there and probably less than 5% actually will ever play a game in the majors in double A. Very few. Right. But... To me, it felt like a publicity stunt. But again, he wasn't on the big team. He was on the double-A team. So it wasn't really a financial game. But what Michael Jordan really was doing, and he only batted 200, which is cuttable, which is you, you shouldn't be on the team. You need to be out of at least 250 on up in double-A ball to have a chance. And they don't want to stick with guys who don't have a chance to go to the majors. They're not there just to, for fun. They're, they're here building athletes. And if, you don't, if you're not good enough, they get rid of you. You're just not what they're looking for. But he took the spot of another baseball player who actually does have a chance, you know? And I always thought that was very selfish because he just <laughs> didn't have the skill set for that sport. He's already dominated another sport. It's not realistic he's going to make it into baseball. That was, uh, I didn't know that, by the way. Like when, when I was watching the documentary and he's talking about how he wants to be competitive in baseball, but he still has a basketball body. And then when he went back to basketball, he's like, now I have a baseball body and it's going to take me you know, six months to get in shape again. I just thought being in shape meant being in shape. I didn't know you had to like be a certain build for the sport. It is. There's different muscles and it's a different speed. It's a different patience. Yeah, it, it's a totally different thing. You would think you'd just be good at everything, right? Yeah. Right. If you're strong and fast, no, it's not. That there, was, some, that... there are some complimentary things, but overall... Baseball players and basketball players are, are a different breed. They're built differently. They're short, right. stocky, strong, not tall, lean. You remember um, years and years ago, we did an episode about fighting and like the science of like, you know, there's, there's a lot of evidence that we've always been this competitive, that there is um, the way that the human cheekbones are shaped. Your cheekbone, um, like they, they believe that over evolutionary years, we've got thicker and thicker cheekbones specifically to take a punch like that that it is our internal face mask that protects the soft gooey things in our head from a fist specifically and i've always thought that was funny that like well now we we are getting used to building our bodies for other sports even though that is the the first original competitive sport is punching each other and our our faces over the fire basically truth be told because Joe is my mentor. He's my coach for a lot of, for this podcast and for speaking and for a lot of things, for storytelling as well. 
Um, I've always wanted to punch you in the face, but you're just so freaking strong. I'm afraid you'll rip me off, like a, <laughs> rip me apart like a gorilla. <laughs> you're younger and stronger than me, so I that's why I've never punched you in the face. But I've always wanted to. Yeah, that is that is my weird science <laughs> threat at a bar with, with with my friends. Is I just tell them how dense my face bones are. That's that's what gets me out of fights. So we we covered something in that original episode about fighting. Why? competition among our own species because the the real universal truth of like competition is that when two people compete uh in the wild neither of them win they deprive each other of resources and calories it's much better if everybody is like a, a lone wolf out hunting and getting meat for themselves if if two people two creatures compete they're fighting for the same carcass like they're they're losing calories and risking themselves to do it um and that's what I've always told young men about fighting in bars or street. You're going to get hurt. You're going to break your hand, break your nose. Probably, and if you win, you probably end up going to jail. Right. So you have a broken hand and you go to jail and you want to, so you, you call that winning, you know, <laughs> and the both sides, it's a lose, lose. Right. Right. Well, if, like if we fighting over a woman and, and then she doesn't want either one of us because we're acting like total assholes. Right. <laughs> and that's that's the entire premise of Fight Club is why do we have that instinct? Yet it doesn't serve us in the same way anymore. If you'll just look like a jerk because you got in a fight and then you'll possibly go to prison. Um, but but, but, the, but back yeah. in the day. Right. That's how you got resources and a mate. Right. Cool. Okay. That that's the, exactly the theory. The, the the answer to this whole episode possibly is why is Michael Jordan allowed to be a jerk? Well, because he gets mating rights and resources from being a jerk, and, like and that right. comes with competitiveness. And, he, and so he can go in the nightclub because he's famous and has more money than you, and pull anybody out of there. And, and back in the good old days, we're in the caves, right? I'll go take your food and your wife, and that's that, right? Right. So. This brings me to an interesting study that um, I want to like talk about. Um, I found a 2014 study that talked about potentially being the the alpha male, being the the I'll punch you over fire, I'll outscore you on the basketball court, whatever. If you are the competitive creature in the room, you will get better resources and and more uh, more resources more resources and better resources equals more mating rights effectively with humans um we don't have tusks we don't have sharp teeth we don't have you know claws but we can use tools and we can stack resources and we can count resources our best uh, ability is not necessarily tool making and spear making our best ability is that we can marshal resources more than like what you know we can carry on our back but this study points out that um, just sort of like a, a, a meta study uh, across uh, organisms and individuals with conflicts, if you are a lesser competitor, almost without exception, you are also um, better at using the resources you have. So a Michael Jordan will get all the best resources. He will literally make more money than any other basketball player on the court with him most nights. However, everybody else around the court, they're able to do more with less. They're, they're able to do things more efficiently. And we mean that both in the spirit of the sport and also with money is the less resources you have, the better you are at using them. That means that, like you said, coachable yeah. people, they're like, oh, I'll just be more malleable. I'll, I'll be easier to, you know, form into the type of shooter that we need or the type You're of right. 
Yeah. yeah. And, 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 to, and to speak to that, um, small business owners, um, people, this is what a problem that I've seen. Um, the more resources you have when you open a small business, the more waste there is. You're really almost better off to in the beginning to have a shoestring budget because where there's more resources and more waste. And it can look like you're investing when really you're just flushing money going down the toilet. And it reminds me of that. Yeah. And that's that's a, a, a huge part of competitiveness is deciding whether or not you have the ability and resources to start at the high end of competition or if that will just lead to you losing hard. Because if you are, let's say, uh, a young kid fresh into the league and you go up against Jordan, you either need to be on that level and ready to compete or you need to do more with less resources and not compete directly. Um, and he did well. Like, I'm not bashing our, our, our narrative. Uh, you know, somebody who can score that many points a game, 37, and it was a career best for him. That's not something to sneeze at. But um, no, well, let you me, lose let me, resources. Let me, yeah. let me add to that, too, though. On the court, and this is something I do respect about Michael Jordan, and he's one of the few players. A lot of times nowadays, we're we're just so impressed by sports scores, and not people who play defense, do passing. They're not glorified at all. But a lot of the scorers will score thirty points in a game, but then they give up fifty points because they don't play defense. Yeah, they still get all the big pay. They still get all this praise. Michael Jordan played defense harder than he played offense. So usually when they do that, it takes away from their scoring. But it didn't for him. There's been a handful of players like that who are, are both ways. And that shows true competitive. That's someone who doesn't just want to be the score, the face of, you know, on TV, but wants to win. Right. He wants to be totally dominant. Because defense is not fun. Right. Scoring's fun. <laughs> and it pays better. But he had to do both to win. And he did. He did it great for a long time. He never let off Kobe Bryant, the same thing. They were just as good at defense as offense. And that's why they're beloved. And that's why they're, you know, forever worshipped in the in the world. Right. That's why he had decades career where most basketball players only they play for like three or four years. Um so one of the the thoughts I had when I was reading about this, uh, this was a study out of the University of Bonn, and we'll link to it. Um, one of the things that they mention is, well, does that mean that humans are unique? If we're not going to lock horns or antlers or, or box or out, try to, you know, shoot somebody, not, shoot is in score, not, not, you know, kill. But if, if we're going to directly compete with somebody, um, we will be on their level or we, at least we'll try to, we had a, a quote from a CEO at the start of this episode that is basically, you know, don't compete unless you are able to win like unless you have a, a advantage um and they thought perhaps you know with humans uh, um would women prefer males with high quality resources or would they be more content with males that are um able to get low quality resources they're not a big scorer they're not a big competitor but they're able to do more with less and they compensate by providing much more care so the the, the so evolutionary advantage, yeah. Drum drum roll, drum roll. Which is it? <laughs> um, this from Leif, uh, Leif Engweist, uh, co-author of the study. He said, "Drum roll." Females almost always evolve to prefer people with highly competitiveness, not people who are efficient, but the people who are able to get resources quickly and and with a lot of. Um, I was gonna say with a lot of like competitive spirit, but really just more. They had more advantage. 
now would you rather compete in a small group or a large group is is one of the big questions me personally small group sounds easier <laughs> i think you want to do small small pond first and then you go to a to an ocean later once you get once you get better once you've outgrown that and, and dominated and beat all those people then you go to the ocean test scores is the way they they tested it um they would have people go in and take tests and it was just pen on paper it was a normal test and they increased the amount of people sitting around their mark so like they'd send somebody in to take a test they would give them you know here, here's your your scantron here's your pen fill it out and go and they found that as they put more people around the test taker like like the the group or the pool of testers increased the competitiveness of the person taking the test decreases so when it's just like six people in the room much more competitive people want to beat each other um, they finish faster, they score higher. Um, but as the once you get to the point where everyone's taking a test and it's in a, a coliseum or like a, a gymnasium and it's like, you know, taking the SATs, that's when it becomes the least competitive when there's really? more people around them. And they have to be told that they are competing. It, they, they have to be told that it is against other people. Um, but you want you to be the, part of the Elite the, Ten. Yeah. Do you think that's the give up? that you know I, i've been singing in this choir and there's auditions for solos and when i saw that 50 people auditioned for him i thought well i can't beat i'm not better than 50 people at anything certainly not singing so i said eh, let him win you know I'm no i have try I, I think you're dead on it i that i think that's absolutely what it proves um there, there are other disciplines uh, um they they found that when they put out um this, uh, they talked about this in a Freakonomics episode when they put out bids for uh, graphic design work uh, by freelancers. They found that if they if the freelancers believed there were more than 100 people in the competition to get the best design out for like a flag or for a, a business sign, um, the more people like the like if there's 100 graphic designers submitting designs, people spent less time on it and they didn't put in as much work and they were less competitive about the design. But if they thought the pool was only like 10 people, they would put out, you know, more work, better designs with more time attached to it. So it's 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 not just basketball like like this episode is really just about we are very competitive humans. There's a reason it's to gather resources faster than the other people around us. And also the more people around us, the less likely we are to compete. And so the competitive mind really benefits from subdividing. Um, I, when I enter into a writing contest, I don't think about the you know seven thousand people who are entering the same contest. I think about the six or seven other writers I know who I've talked to online and have looked at their work, and I know where they placed last year or, or whatever. I'll I'll kind of keep loose mental track of the people who are in my same category, and I'll see how they place. And it it makes it feel like you're competing with a smaller, you know, rounder group around your, your same level. And, well, and that's, a, and that's, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just going to say that that sounds like what he, Michael was doing when he, you know, made up the story about this kid throwing his arm around and him telling him nice game. It's like, I think he is isolating himself into a small field of competitors mentally. Yeah. And the same thing when we do our speech contest, um, we get that feeling. We feel like Anthony Robbins when we, we we beat we win a speech contest when there's only two other people in it, right? Or if then we, we go to the higher level, we start we start measuring ourselves with the people that we know, yeah, right. 
and then we'll dismiss it as bad judging if we don't win. Right? Obviously, these people are idiots. They don't know a great speech when they hear it, you know? <laughs> right. <laughs> but we figure out a way to justify that we're still the best and we're still better than them. Yeah, the the, the judges just had seen the other person more. They they had you know, a better repertoire. Or um, yeah, we um, run a narrative, but we seem to yeah. always be the winner at the end, right? It's like, right, exactly. They, they, always, they always end the same. Very rarely do I win anything, and I actually think up reasons why uh, it was unjust that they gave me a trophy. <laughs> well, we really should have been in fourth place. Yeah. Right. It's <laughs> <laughs> funny. I never thought of that. Did I ever? Uh, I I think I did send you in this um, the episode doc the the ten minute supercut of michael taking it personally just, just well i know with this anything one, yeah. yeah yeah oh boy well taking it personal and that that's a thing so you build up this anger you build up this rage i see this a lot in, in, in ufc fighting and boxing they'll start a little tiff with each other to, to get mad to get angry pitbull mad before a fight and then and that's what something michael said he knew needed and there was a time and he has a lot of examples of one my favorite one was um, before the Bulls really went on their run of dominance, there was another team, another city on its run in the NBA, and it was it was the Detroit Pistons, and they were b- nicknamed the Bad Boys. They were notorious um, for being physical and even dirty. They had a few players on their team, uh, Rich Mern, uh, Bill Lambeer. They had some guys that were just known to be rotten sports. And when I mean that, Sports used to be a little bit more physical back then in the 80s and 90s. And so they decided this, this Jordan kid was coming up and he was special. I mean, he could win a game all by himself. And there's very few players in history that can do that. He's one of the few. Him, Will Chamberlain, LeBron James, um, Kobe Bryant. But that's it. You know, there's no one. Right. Really, no, those guys is level. Um, and they knew this. So they made a, a gentleman's agreement they said they're going to have Jordan rules. And what Jordan rules was, when he has the ball, you knock him on his ass. Period. Who's ever covering him, you, we just swarm him like a bees and knock him down physically. We punch him. We knock him. We trip him. We push him. We, I mean, and they did. They did so just that. super dirty. Super dirty. To the fact that the, the media caught wind of this. They could see it. I mean, this was almost like a mugging. They could press charges, right? <laughs> and so they'd mockingly, sarcastically say, Jordan Rules, what's that? During interviews. Oh, I never heard of that. And that would even piss me off, you know, that you're purposely trying to hurt me, you know? Right. So that one I give him credit for. He didn't imagine that one. I saw it. I remember that. <laughs> I mean, like, the, I know that part of it is they're trying to grief him and they're they're trying to, like, um intimidate him did it seem to work like like it did early but he got tougher they did it they did and he, he it took him a couple of years to get over the piston hump but when they did they did and what's funny about it when they finally beat the pistons and send the pistons home the pistons who had already been winning for a long time who were very competitive that's why they were so physical they walked off the court um before the game was over, which is very, very disrespectful. And, uh, you know, they should be ashamed of that. You don't do that. You don't, you play to the end, you shake the guy's hand, say good game, especially when they've been assaulting him all these years. Right. So it, it worked at the beginning, but then he, his competitiveness won out in the long run. He, 
the thing that kept hitting me is like he is still as emotionally invested in all of the scenes, even though he is retired. Like he he doesn't seem to have forgotten any of those grudges that he he had. No, he still does. <laughs> he he still he has a hatred for Isaiah Thomas on the Detroit Pistons to this day. He was so angry about the, how the, his his relationship with Isaiah Thomas. He insisted that when there was, they finally said that um, professional athletes could be in the Olympics. He wouldn't allow Isaiah Thomas to be on the Olympic team with him. You know, and, and there's other things with him. Um, Michael Jordan would would pick fights and practice with his teammates. He, he beat up Steve Kerr. So, and of course, he beat he didn't beat up the big guys, Joe. He always seemed to get in fights with a guy who was about a foot shorter than him, the littlest <laughs> guy on the court. <laughs> and I don't care what any Jordan fan said. That's a fact. An actual punching. Like like when they pick fights, yeah. we're not putting not on little, air quotes. Not a little shoving match or a little slapping, but an actual fist fight. But again, right. it was it wasn't with the big dudes. Or even a guy his own size. It was always it was always a little bit of an advantage. I I don't want to drag us too far off subject, but um I used to have a boss that Whenever she would go to talk to um, our our overlords, like we we were subcontracted, and she would have to go and do like a weekly report to the people we were contracted to, and so she would like before meeting with basically the client, she would psych herself up and get angry, and like she really looked at it as a dominance thing. Like she's like, when I go in there and talk about our you know behavior, our performance, whatever we're offering as a company. She was like, uh, they're going to see it my way or nobody's walking out of that boardroom. Like, like she, she was so dominant. And I always kind of attributed that to like the same thing, like, like borderline bullying that there are people who go through life, even in like very boring worlds, like not basketball. The stakes are just, you know, your, your job, like, like that's, or, or not just a job, a, a contracted job like like a temporary short job that you have not not your full career and they come at it with the same ferocity and the same bullying mentality and i think there are old ceos who think that works like like i think it's the same group like those people would have also been basketball coaches in another life well yeah who was that what was our wall street episode about who was that dick fuels right oh god yeah no the, the <laughs> yeah. yelling screaming the guy who you know who who ran this big hedge fund and screaming and eating yeah, ribs and spitting on people and and that's how you get that's how you get people to do what you want to do win at all costs you know and did that your boss going back to that did she win were you glad that you had her on your team because I mean, sometimes you can point that alpha female at somebody if anybody messes with you say hey listen i'm gonna call my my boss lady you're gonna be in big trouble you don't want to mess with her man Right. That's that's what you uh, everybody says. They want to have the bulldog on their side um, and that they, they will, you know, wrestle the bone away from the, the other team or the other clients or they'll come out of the, the meeting and they'll they'll have, you know, championed you so hard that you walk away with the best deal. But no, she got fired. <laughs> There's, it's a very anticlimactic way to, to punchline that. But no, well, it, but it, that's the results. Right. It doesn't always yeah. work. You got to know you got to know when to push and when to pull. Right. Right. And I, I think that that whole way self, of thinking is slowly going away. Her self-awareness of what was working and wasn't working. And a lot of times people are poor evaluators to why they think that's why they're where they're at. And it's not. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, 
uh, this this might be surprising, but uh, I ended up watching the Texas Rangers uh, championship run. Um, and I'm not a I'm not a baseball fan, but um, my fiance's family is. So I by um, by osmosis, I ended up being a baseball fan this year. And something that surprised me was as they beat other teams, other teams would have these Jordan characters. They would have these people who were like highly competitive, very sort of noisy, like, you know, act a little bit like a bully. But all of the players on the Texas Rangers team, they were just calm, like Zen masters. And they didn't, they didn't like spit. They didn't pick fights. They didn't, they didn't even have fake grudges. That's, that's what I usually expect when I watch sports, especially boxers. Like I always expect everybody to, have invented a beef or have a, a fake grudge, at least for the sake of entertaining the audience. But these people just went about their business like they were in the Olympics. There's a, a famous speech that Michael Jordan gave after his career was over, and he's going in the Hall of Fame, um, which is an honor. And so you get to get up, and only a few players that play, you know, out of out of the thousands that play, make it into the the Hall of Fame, which means when you're one of the greatest players that ever played, and that you're in a museum and they have a statue of you. It's a big honor. You know, you get the jacket. It's, 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 uh, it's certainly better than the gold watch. And, uh, he gave a speech, but in his speech, it's a, there's that famous, you know, scene of him crying. Right. Right. Which show is a sign of what? Uh, passion being soft. Yeah. Won't be invulnerable. Right. Yeah. Um, but his speech was anything, but his speech was still bringing up, old grudges and talking about people who had never believed in him and bullying even up at the letter and talking about how, and I, and I get this with a lot of pro athletes. They say, nobody believed me. I did all this all by myself. Absolutely ridiculous. They right. had parents, teachers, coaches, family members have all been all in on them. They've been worshiped. They, they've dominated all through their life. And been rewarded for it with scholarships and attention and, and more resources to train. So for those people to be saying that nobody believed in them, it's re- Joe, it's, it's literally mental health. So maybe they have to create that to fuel them, but it's not true. They, they've, they've, they've actually had special treatment. <laughs> they've right. had favoritism. They've gotten more playing time. They've gotten more coaching time. They've gotten more time in open gyms. And there's and they have a lack of gratitude that this person didn't believe in me or this and that. You know, the big thing was Michael Jordan said, I was cut from the varsity basketball team. He wasn't cut. He just wasn't old enough yet. He was Total. like a sophomore, wasn't he? Exactly. And he was in a very good school. So yeah, in a small school, crappy school like I went to, he would have played freshman year, he would have been a varsity. But when you're on a big school, those kids deserve it. And that just shows how detached he is from reality. It's just like baseball. They let him play baseball when he had no business doing it. He didn't bring that up. He right. say, Thanks for letting me play baseball with you guys, even though I'm not qualified. So <laughs> he got his turn. He went to college. He was drafted first overall. Yeah, he's, you know, it's not first over, but, but right away. You know, another athlete will do that. He'll be drafted second or third and say, look, at me. I was disrespected. You were picked third out of every college player in the world. And you think that's disrespectful, (laughs) you know. Talking about someone who's the the polar opposite um, image, who's had equal success, but in a different business, is Tom Brady. 
the NFL quarterback. He's won seven Super Bowls. He's been to 10. No player will ever do that again. They say that um, Patrick Mahomes might. It's very unlikely to play that long and have that much success over that time set, set of time. Yeah. But it's well known. Tom Brady, during press conferences, always says the right thing. He's always polite. He's always sweet. Ex-teammates talk about they played with him only for a year. They weren't star players. He texts them and asks about their kid's birthday. Oh, wow. Stuff like that. Now, Michael Jordan, and this is how this episode came up, because Michael Jordan is known by anybody as this ultra-competitive winner who, who will just cut your throat for anything. Well, he bought in. He was the first person to own um, the Charlotte Hornets, and he bought them in 2010, and he paid $275 million for them. Now, you'd think that'd be a match made in heaven, right? A minority or an NBA team by the greatest player that ever played. You would think that his team, because he would know, he knows more about basketball than everybody else, right, Joe? I would think that he would put them through a superhuman regiment that would make them all monsters. Like, I, I would imagine they would be the most dominant team in, in the league. Yeah, because he knows the players to get. He knows the right coaches to get. And people would like to play for him. Who wouldn't want to play for Jordan? If you're a basketball player, that would be, be an honor, dream, right? Right. Under his leadership, for 13 seasons, their record, they won 423 games. They lost 600. They made the okay. playoffs only three times, which in NBA is kind of easy to get in the playoffs. They never won one single series. So a man who won all these NBA championships, he was his people skills, I think, were a problem. They never won one playoff series. Forget about a championship. They were a shitty team the whole time he owned it. <laughs> but you know how it gets. You know how bad people always get rewarded. I told you he bought the, the franchise for $275 million. Right. Guess what he sold it for? Uh, you're t I was going to guess the same amount or less because it was a losing team. Right. But well, there's inflation. And sports have become more monetized. So <laughs> he bought it for $275 million. He sold it for $3 billion. <laughs> he, he sold it like it was a French painting. That's proof that assholes finish first. I'm making that your ringtone, by the way. <laughs> and then there's Leroy Smith. Now, you guys think that's a myth. Leroy Smith was a guy, when I got cut, he made the team on the varsity team. And he's here tonight. He's still the same 6'7 guy. He's not any bigger. He, his, probably his game is about the same. But he started the whole process with me because when he made the team and I didn't, I wanted to prove not just to Leroy Smith, not just to myself, but to the coach who actually picked Leroy over me. I wanted to make sure you understood. You made a mistake, dude. If we can put the right type competitiveness into somebody like an injection early on, we don't go with Michael Jordan's type of competition. We go with like the quiet, um, dogged, uh, nose to the grindstone type of competitor. Uh, at least that's what I would go with. And there is a an article that came out of Sports Science that I want to run past you because they called it quiet eye tracking. Like the the right type of competitiveness apparently comes down to something called quiet eye tracking. 
I like and the name. Then, you got. I'm interested. That kind of sparked my quiet eye tracking. <laughs> it sounds like a superpower, like I'm an X Man or does, something. But yeah. <laughs> what do you got? Um, well, if if you're learning how to like dance, or you're learning how to dribble, or you're learning how to do anything for the first time, and it's like a physical activity, you have to pay attention to a lot. You have to learn how and where to step, and like what to do with your hands. Yep, and you're yep. watching sort of your body and in, in make the motions. I'm, you know what? I'm doing that with singing. I'm taking singing lessons to improve my speaking voice. And I have to learn how to breathe again. Something I do involuntary. I have to think about how to do it. It's very weird. It's right. very, very physical. Singing is way more physical than everything. I thought it was. Yeah. You're thinking about, you're using it parts of your brain even. It's crazy. So we're going to call that the noisy eye. Your eye is scanning rapidly watching who whoever you're modeling after whoever you're watching to to replicate the sport or activity or or whatever you're doing to compete you're just gathering data you're just just yeah paying attention right if it's your first time uh you know as a trial lawyer you're you're trying to read everybody in the room simultaneously all, all you know however however many jurors and the judge and everybody if it's your first time um trying to negotiate you're you're watching everybody you're trying to you know read everybody um, and you're trying to watch yourself at the same time and how much you're sweating. And <laughs> I mean, like, it, it doesn't matter what era or, or area you're competing in. You will have a noisy eye to start with. You, you'll, you'll track everything. You'll, you'll spin mentally. But if you repeat the same activity over and over and over again, um, the researchers in this called it a quiet eye that your gaze right before you make a movement, um, goes to what you should be aiming at and the rest of your body and everything else around you kind of like. It's like dance. You you know the movements your body should be making. You know your form, but your eye is just tracking where the ball is about to go or where you're you're about to you know move next. You're not looking at your feet anymore and dancing. Yeah. You're looking forward toward where you're moving. And in speaking, it would be you know you you've gotten to this point in negotiation before. You've gotten to this point in your speeches before. Now you're just sort of like mentally flowing to the next emotional frame, like. It's 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 really just a thought of you are looking at where you're supposed to go do or be next. You're no longer watching everything in the room around you. Everyone's seen this, in, you know, in sports and in any in anything you compete in. When you there's a person where you're playing checkers and they're playing chess. There there's so many moves ahead of you, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you know that you're doomed. You have no chance. They're gonna get you late. It's gonna hurt. It's it's the person, it's the pitcher with a really calm demeanor and they, you know, they're not smiling, they're not frowning, like there's nothing really going on behind mm -hmm. their 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 features or, or what emotion they're displaying. They're not even doing a Jordan. They're not bullying, they're not screaming, they're not spitting and angry. They're just tracking. Like like it, it is almost like a hunter. Like like their eye is just zoned in and they're tracking where the next movement is. And that, from every bit of evidence I could get online, that is the best type of competitiveness, apparently. Like, that's the one where it, uh, it doesn't I, matter what you are. You can excel by by doing that. Well, I have a sports example of that. I, I go to yeah, probably one baseball game a year. We live in the you know Northwest, so I go up to the Seattle Mariners game. And their bullpen, the pitchers that go in, in relief pitchers who come in later in the game to play, they all sit out in the back, and there's a bullpen. But the Seattle Mariners field is very unique. It, it, you are so close to them. There is a glass up, but you look at them almost, they're only a foot away from you. 
And so I go out there and I watch the players, and it's re- I found it very, very interesting, Joe. These big men, six foot five, muscular, heavy set, who can hurl a baseball anywhere from 90 miles to over 100 miles an hour. They're so, it's just what you just talked about. When they warm up for the game, they're so slow and mechanical and deliberate about their movements. And even though we're staring at them, they do, it doesn't bother them at all. They don't even see us. They warm up. They go about. The, anybody else, if you're doing your job and people were staring at you like this, if you had 50 people staring, it wouldn't bother you. It would annoy, make you uncomfortable. But they're so calm breathing. They're so relaxed. And they're so slow and mechanical, you know, just deliberate in their moves. They're just so professional, so polished. You can tell that even though 30,000 people are watching them and the stakes are high, they could be humiliated. There's no nerves there. They're just, they're just slow breathing, slow heartbeat, cool, cool cucumbers, man. Right. Uh, speak softly, carry a big stick. <laughs> and I think that that's what Jordan actually had going for him is sometimes he would have that. Um, there was a part in the documentary where they're talking about how he is, uh, he's filming Space Jam. And at the same time, uh, whenever he's not filming, he is arranging for um, games like he is having some of the best players in the NBA come play one on one with him and then three on three and then five on five without the association being involved. Like basketball itself is not there with cameras. He's doing this to get his basketball body back and he's doing this to get back in shape. and. I think that was what actually made him incredibly dominant. I don't think, I think if anything, him being a bully and, and having that quote unquote competitive spirit, I think that hurt him way more than it helped him. Like, I think it was his super training regiment. I don't think it was anything to do with. He's such a competitive spirit. Yeah. I, I agree with you too. And I think, I think a lot of it too is just his genetics and his work ethic were more important than those, that thing. Yeah. Um, another sign of an athlete who is is incredibly competitive, I think of Walter Payton, I think of Michael Jordan, I think of Tom Brady, is what they see. The they don't get hurt a lot because they take such good care of their bodies. And to me, that's the real competitive. It's not being a jerk and keeping your guys up all night playing poker. It was when the other guys are off in the off season. You're jogging that five miles. You're lifting weights. You're doing yoga. You're like you're only eating certain foods. That's where the real competitiveness comes. Um, football player, the two oldest NFL football players on the defense and the offense, James Harrison was who played for the Pittsburgh Steelers, and Tom Brady, towards the end of the, the year, they were spending $1,000 a day on their body, right? That's so crazy. That, that comes up to 300 and something thousand dollars. And people say, well, yeah, they're making a lot of money. To... They did that their whole career. That's why they're the oldest players. And they say, yeah, but they make all this money. So don't those other players. But they don't, they're not that competitive. Right. They're competitive on the field. They'll bully and this and that. Their careers are shorter because they're, they're not willing to be competitive when no one else is watching. The true value of competition in everyday life is probably not in the motivation it gives us. There aren't many bosses who can get away with acting like Michael Jordan, shouting at subordinates to step up their game. And if you've experienced someone who fabricates grudges and raises everyone's blood pressure for the sake of a competitive edge, we're betting you 
didn't work with them very long. Instead of being the coal in the rage engine driving you, think of competition like the mile markers out alongside the track. Competition should give you a sense of how you stack up against other professionals, how fast you're going, how far you've come. Going head to head against another company, a friend or a coworker, should be approached like data finding mission, a way to test how much further you need to go or how many more reps you need to put in before you consider yourself world-class. Competition is necessary to bring out the best in us, whether it's competition in the gym, a jogging partner, a rival lawyer, a business mentor, or a writing group. Competition can be respectful and supportive. Competition can be healthy and encourage us to develop our quiet eye. But if competition becomes toxic or violent, or it comes with consequences outside the game we're playing, then quit, reassess, and decide if you're really competing to improve or because you're addicted to the high of winning. You're listening to The Reengineered You. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You mean the world to us. We have a new episode every week. You can connect with us or play quarters against us at www.re-engineeredu.com. That's where we have research links, show notes, feedback, and blog articles for each of our episodes. We're not experts in anything, but we've got an opinion on everything. Mm-hmm.